Yeah, let's get started. Tonight, I really want to start getting us into more practical how-tos. We're going to start getting there, but one of the things I think that over the years, and I think you, you all would probably agree with this statement, is there's a certain mindset that we need to have in terms of talking to other people about the gospel. And that's one of those things that we want to, really the goal is to align our thinking with the word of God, to align our thinking with God's heart. We've talked about that a little bit the last couple of weeks. We still want to talk a little bit about that tonight as we get into the practical, because we just always want to remember, you know, our lives, it sounds cliche, but you know, our lives are not our own. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Corinthians 5, which let me just read that is setting the stage for us this evening. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, for the love of Christ compels us. It has the idea of constrains us or I can't think of another sin, but, but constrains us or maybe motivates us, compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And then here's the verse that really just jumps out to me when I think about my own life that, and he died for all that those who, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. A lot of these evangelistic opportunities starts with just us recognizing that our life's not our own and that God may have a purpose. And that's not to put pressure on us to evangelize every person we talk to, but that he may want to use us to share his good news. It's just taking that mindset into our day-to-day lives that that I'm hoping we're each encouraged to do that. This week, we're going to start talking about practical how-tos, and we'll get more into probably the, the real detailed how-tos next week, and we'll start ramping up to that this week. Just as a quick review, last week, we looked at the positives and the negatives of three types of evangelism. We looked at proclamational evangelism, which would be evangelism um, up front, maybe to a larger group. You know, this is something that a a pastor or a traveling evangelist would do, maybe in a big crowd of people, maybe in a, a big church, maybe in a big stadium, maybe not in a big church, maybe a church of 40 or 50 people. They can, pastors can still do proclamational evangelism. The point is, is that we're proclaiming the message to a group confrontational or intrusional evangelism is is typically one-on-one or maybe one-on-two, but it's it's evangelism with a stranger, somebody that you don't know. And, and this happens a lot when churches plan outreach events. You, you end up talking to strangers or uh, maybe if you're at a restaurant, you, you get to share the gospel with your waiter or your waitress. You're on an airplane. You get to share the gospel with someone sitting next to you. It's typically a stranger on the other side of the conversation. And then type three, which we said would be the best type. The reason we said it was the best type, because it seems to be the most effective way to move into a disciple making relationship. Remember the, the goal of the church of Jesus Christ is to make disciples and not just disciples, but to make future disciple makers. The, the intention is to also, as you're discipling someone, casting that vision for them to understand and know that they too are disciple makers, that Jesus is calling them to a lifetime and a role of disciple making as well. And that is how this replication and duplication out of the three types of evangelism, relational evangelism seems to be the best at moving into disciple making relationships. And we kind of went over why last week, but I would say this, 
just one style of evangelism never reflects the ideal method for a church body. Just one style. You know, some churches feel very comfortable because they're doing one of these styles at least. And the pastor or Bible teacher can do proclamational evangelism from the pulpit each week. And I believe he should. I believe pastors, I think we're, we've been entrusted with the gospel message. We should try to work that message into every message that we preach publicly. We should proclaim the message. We've got people that sit under our teaching. It could be children. It could be adults that have that have heard it a hundred times, but when you share it the hundred and first time, it clicks. Something's going on in their life in that moment where the message just clicks for the first time and means something for the first time. I remember even as a young man growing up in church and, and going to church most every Sunday, and, and I was saved when I was five years old, but I went through a period of prolonged carnality. I just wasn't interested in spiritual things. I was interested in worldly things. And I was interested in making a lot of money and playing professional baseball and, and good looking girls. And I mean, all the stuff that you would think that a young man would be interested in a, a carnal man anyways. And, and I remember I went to a men's retreat that changed my life and there was nothing innately special about the men's retreat. But when somebody reminded me of the gospel at the men's retreat, it meant something to me all over again. It meant something to me like like it had not meant to me since I was five years old. It, it was the same message, Christ dying for my sins, rising again, but I was just overwhelmed with the love of God that Christ would come and die for me. And I, I knew the message, but I heard it again and it was fresh in my mind. So pastors and Bible teachers should understand this and should be engaged in proclamational evangelism every week. I also believe that the church as a group can have planned and organized outreaches, engaging strangers in confrontational or intrusional evangelism. And again, I believe churches should do this. Whether or not we think it's effective, whether or not we think it's easy, it is a great opportunity to get out and to train and equip our body, our our believers that attend our local assembly, to train them in an evangelism method, to get them equipped so that they are comfortable sharing the gospel message because we hope it would lead to this third style more naturally. And that is that every individual in the church can have relationships with unbelievers, hopefully leading to relational evangelism opportunities. And again, we each individually should. This is what I believe a healthy church should look like a well-rounded, multifaceted, multiple angles of people, believers who, who are interested in preaching, sharing, communicating the gospel in all of these different spheres of life. And this is the thing. The reason I say this is because some believers get so hung up on style that they will discount all other styles that they don't believe is the best style. We could we could say, you know, I believe relational evangel relational evangelism is the best style. And so we don't have to proclaim it from the pulpit. In fact, you shouldn't proclaim it from the pulpit. I even had a, a gentleman tell me one time that that pastors shouldn't proclaim the gospel from the pulpit because really this it's a training church should be a training ground for Christians. Well, I agree that church should be a training ground for Christians, but 
why would a Christian get tired of hearing about what Jesus did for them? Why is it not helpful for believers to hear what Jesus has done for them and be reminded in worship of everything he accomplished for them? Why, why would that be ever a negative thing? In fact, not only that, but a clear understanding of the gospel can have a direct impact on how successful we live the Christian life. Colossians 2.6 says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So sometimes the better you understand the gospel and the better the under, you understand how one gets saved, the more effective you can be living the Christian life because you live the Christian life the same way you got saved. It's by grace through faith. And so just very important to understand that not just one style is the only style. We've already agreed that relational evangelism seems to be the, the best style that leads to disciple making, but it doesn't mean that's the only style. In fact, we use confrontational evangelism oftentimes to train and equip believers to share the gospel and then have the ability, hopefully in their daily lives, to share the gospel in relational situations. Even the, the method that we use a lot here um, at our church, the survey evangelism method, not the perfect method, not the greatest method, I'm sure. I'm sure there are better methods. It gets us into spiritual conversations with people. There was one particular event that we did. It was on Labor Day. We were at a flea market. And I remember looking over. It was a full day event, probably from eight to five. And I remember looking over and I remember seeing my daughter, Abby. She was 16 at the time with her friend, Julie, who goes to, goes to our church. She was 16 at the time. And I remember thinking, every time I looked over at them, it seemed like they were talking to a new person. With the survey, we bring people into the booth. They sit down at the table. And I looked over and, and Abby and Julie were talking to somebody. And Abby and Julie were talking to another person. And all day long, it's like they never got up from the table. And I went over at the end of the day. I said, have y'all been keeping track of how many surveys you've been doing? How many gospel presentations? And these two 16-year-old girls in one day shared the gospel 40 different times. 40 times in one day. You think in terms of you get an opportunity to share the gospel and you get to do it 40 times in one day, you're going to quickly understand and learn a method that you're going to be able to use in daily life. And there's an equipping aspect to that. It reminds me of a of a story. D.L. Moody was, was talking to a woman and the woman came up to him and says, D.L. Moody, I've got a bone to pick with you. And he said, okay, what's that? And she said, I do not like the way that you do evangelism. And D.L. Moody said, you know what? I don't always like the way I do evangelism. How do you do evangelism? And she says, well, I don't do evangelism. And he says, well, I basically, I like my crappy way better than your non way of sharing evangelism or doing evangelism. And the idea is, is a healthy church should just be available and open to doing multiple styles. And this is good. This is what we want to get to. As we get into tonight, I want to remind us of this quote that some estimate that only 5% of believers ever lead someone to Christ in their lifetime. And it's largely due to fear or feelings of unpreparedness. Those are the two holdups that most believers have in terms of sharing the gospel. I think the very first thing I just want to to point out is I think each one of us needs to take a mindset that that we're going to be willing to engage with people. And we'll we'll talk more about what that means. It's not saying that I am going to engage every person that I see, but I'm but I'm willing to engage people 
in conversation. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we get into the details. We want to talk about some practical how-tos tonight. In fact, there's five of them that I want to go over tonight. Before we do that, I want to, I want to look at a verse. 1 Peter 3.15 up on your screen. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the main point there, when we look at this verse, is many times we jump to the end. We start talking about giving an answer. But to me, this is the whole key to the verse. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's really the foundational comment in this entire verse. And the idea, I think, I mean, we can get into a lot of details here, but the word sanctify means to set him apart. And the idea is that is that we are, are mentally aware, intentionally occupied with him, his character, his promises, his desire to work in our lives. But the idea is that, that we are living life with him set apart. He is the special guest in every conversation that we have. He is the special guest that's with us everywhere that we go. And the scripture uses a lot of synonymous type of terms. Another term that's synonymous here might be abide in Christ. Another term that might be synonymous here is to walk in the fear of the Lord or to take the Lord into consideration everything that we're doing. But Peter puts it here, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Just very important to be reminded of that truth as we go into this next section of of just getting some practical how-tos. The very first practical how-to is to be aware of God's desire to use you. Just be aware of God's desire to use you. One of the things we read in John 15, 4 through 5, and those of you that heard the message last week, we talked through that, but John 15, four through five says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. What we see there is just something very simple. It's a very simple concept. And that is one of abiding. You know, the word abide means to remain, to stay where you have been placed. That is one of the beautiful things about this passage is that God is the vine dresser and he has placed you and I, each one of us in the vine, exactly where we need to be in order to bear the fruit that he desires to produce in and through your life we've got to understand that you can be used by God right where you are in your social circles, in your sphere of influence. God has a desire to use you. This is those big picture mindset things that we want to take into each, each of our days. Also in light of that, know that God has designed good works that he wants you specifically to walk in. That is incredible. And in so many ways that should take the pressure off of each one of us. You don't have to be the pastor of a mega church. You don't have to be a missionary to Madagascar. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a missionary to the moon. You simply need to walk in the good works that God has designed you for. You simply need to walk by faith and enjoy the Lord 
and allow him to lead you into the good works that he's got in place for you in your life. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, for we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece. We're his work of art, you could say. Interesting Greek word, but it, it, it talks about the product of work. And you are that way. You are God's special workmanship because he created you in Christ Jesus and he created you for a purpose, for good works. Good works don't get you saved, but once you're saved, God has got good works that he's designed you specifically for to walk in. How do we know that? Because it says he created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which speaking of the good works, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God already looks at each one of us and he knows what he wants to utilize you for on a given day, what he wanted to utilize you for today, what he wants to utilize you for tomorrow. What an exciting way to live life. If we can grab hold of this mindset and say, wow, God, today you want to use me. What, what's that going to look like? I want to get out of my own way. I want to stop tripping on my own feet. I just want to walk by faith and see where you're guiding and leading. There's And there's no pressure in the sense that you have to stir up something that you you must do. Some of these good works, not all of them, but some of them may be sharing the gospel with somebody in your sphere of influence. These are not good works that you're supposed to go out and stir up and create and rustle up. These are good works that as you walk by faith and as you're in fellowship with the Lord, he's going to bring along your path as you're going. That is what's so beautiful about the Great Commission. The command there is to make disciples. Many people think the command is go, but go is simply a participle to describe how you make disciples. And the concept communicated there is as you are going, as you are living your life. God is not telling you, yeah, you you know, to be more fruitful, you might want to remove yourself from the vine and put yourself over here. Like you've got to go to this city or this town, or you got to be in this type of job to be fruitful. No, wherever God has got you in the vine, you can bear fruit. If you're connected and walking by faith with Jesus Christ, you're in fellowship with him. He can produce the fruit that he wants to produce in and through your life. And we just need to be encouraged by this and, and convinced of this. And in that way, every day is not a drudgery. It's an excitement when you get to wake up and say, here's my agenda today. What's your agenda? You know, what do you have in mind? I love this. It, it, there's a great visual image of this, and I won't make a lot of comments on this verse, but I do want to read through this passage. Go with me to Acts chapter three, Acts chapter three. And, and we're going to see the apostle Peter and the apostle John with this kind of mindset. Just this awareness and availability to be used by God. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I just want you to see it's it's as they're going. Okay, Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So why were they going to the temple? Well, they were going to the temple to pray. Okay, That was their plan. That was their life. They, you know, If you'd have looked at Peter and John's agenda that day, at that time, at the ninth hour, they'd have had written in their appointment book, going to the temple to pray. That was on their schedule. But look at verse two. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Fixing his eyes upon him with John, Peter said, look at us. 
And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I'm going to keep reading here in a second, but notice what happened. Schedule was to go pray. That's what they were going. They were going for a prayer time. God presents this man as an opportunity for them. And Peter and John, because they were available to the Lord and and recognizing, I believe that God wanted to use them in these ways, recognize the opportunity. And I believe the spirit of God led them to then take this man and heal him by God's power. It doesn't stop there. Watch what happens. So as this guy is now jumping and people are recognizing this guy, Notice what else Peter and John notice here. Verse 11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And then look at what Peter does. So when Peter saw it, what did he see? He sees a crowd forming. He sees this group of people forming. And now what is he going to do? He is going to transition this miracle into a gospel sharing situation. And he says, so when Peter saw it, verse 12, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk and he goes into a sermon and it was a very effective sermon. Many people got saved. It's just a great example of just being available to the Lord, being aware of God's desire to use each one of us. I've been pulling out little articles from the book, Just What the Doctor Ordered. I've got another one here I want to just share with you. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Again, another encouraging story. We're just going to read the front end of this story. It's called The Case of the Japanese Barber. And I just want you to listen to Dr. Wilson here as he he records another story of him sharing the gospel. He says, all morning long, I had sought time and opportunity to shave myself before starting on a trip to Los Angeles from a neighboring village in which I was visiting. One circumstance after another combined to prevent this until it was time to leave for the city. Hurrying up the long road to the interurban station, I went to the ticket window to purchase a ticket to the city. And there the agent told me that the electric train was two hours late. I felt that the Holy Spirit had some special work for me to do, else I would not have been hindered from shaving in the home of my host. I surmised that somewhere he had a barber to whom I was to have the privilege of giving the gospel that day. I mean, you know, imagine that. Just think about the last time you traveled. I can ashamedly admit that the last time my flight was delayed by two hours, I did not say, wow, maybe the Holy Spirit's got somebody in this airport for me to share the gospel with. I mean, that's a great mindset. That is a biblical mindset, just an awareness that something is a little off course here. Like I, you know, he says, I try to shave myself, but I, everything prevented it. And then I got to the city and I had a two hour delay and, oh, well, God must have a barber here for me to get my, my face shaved that I can share the gospel. I mean, this is This is the way that he's thinking, and and thus there are opportunities that arise, and we've got to be aware that God wants to use us. 
keep going here. Upon learning the train was late, I started walking down the street seeking a barbershop, at the same time looking to the Lord to guide and direct me aright. See, he's walking by faith. He's setting the Lord apart in his heart. This is what he's doing. This is just a, a visual image of that verse. Two blocks down the street was a small revolving sign which attracted me, and I approached the shop. As I opened the door, a bell rang, arousing the barber who was then in the rear of the shop behind a partition. We met near the barber chair, and I observed that he was a Japanese young man of about 35. I asked for a shave, and he politely requested me to sit in the chair, which I did. Adjusting the chair to a reclining position, he soon had the warm lather on my face with a hot towel to soften the beard. While he sharpened his razor, I asked the Holy Spirit for wisdom to approach this man in a wise way so that I might win him for Christ. I inquired of him whether he knew a Mr. Kimura, who is called the Billy Sunday of Japan. He was an evangelist. Where is he from? He asked. His home is in Kyoto, but he preaches all over Japan. Oh, I came from Kyoto. I was born there. He said, is this Mr. Kimura, a little man who builds big wooden tabernacles with sawdust on the ground? Yes, I said. That is his method. My answer produced a deep impression. He obtained a clean towel, wiped the lather from my face until it was dry, raised the chair in order that I might assume a sitting posture, then leaning over the chair with solemn countenance and a serious voice, he said, I will never forget that little man. I went to one of his meetings in Kyoto and I heard him preach. When he finished, he came from the platform down the aisle, placed his hand on my shoulder and said, young man, how are you going to get rid of your sins? Have you found out how? I asked at once. No, he answered. I wish I could. When you rang the bell, I was walking up and down at my little room at the back of the shop, saying those words over and over again and wishing that I knew. Can you tell me? Yes, indeed, I can, said I, whereupon I rose from the chair, obtained my Bible, and returned to read him the story of the Savior's love. So we see a great example of a man who was open and willing and just convinced that God wanted to use him. Going back to our notes, we're going to move on to point number two here. If we are convinced that God wants to use us, our natural response to that is to be equipped. What is meant by being equipped is that we need to be, or we should be intentional about being equipped. Equipped. We should be proactively making ourselves available to be trained, I believe, with an evangelistic method of sorts, a, a plan, a framework, something so that when an opportunity presents itself, we're, we're ready. We're ready to share what we've learned. Some never take the time to invest in equipping. Some will just never even take the time to do that. They'll never be intentional about it. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. A lot of times we, we focus this verse on the pastor teacher here. Because the the pastor teacher is one of the gifted men that's given to the body of Christ to equip the saints. But one of the things that rarely gets brought out is the fact that there are evangelists who are also given to the body to equip the saints. And I believe for works of evangelism or opportunities for evangelism. So in verse 11, it says that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. One of the things I love about that word equipping there is it was used of mending 
fishing nets. Fishermen would go out and fish. And oftentimes a fish would would actually cut through the nets. They would be squirming and maybe with a, a load of fish in there, they would cut holes in the nets. And so many times fishermen would pull their nets in and then they would, before they went out the next day, they would go through and look for holes in their nets. They would mend the nets. And this word used for equipping here is exactly that same word. This word is used in the gospels of uh, for this very reason, where they were mending their nets after a night of fishing. The word is also used in the medical field when a, when a doctor would reset a bone. So a bone is broken and oftentimes before they cast it, they would, they reset the bone. So it's going to grow back together in a healthy way. The same word was used in the medical field of the day. As we take that into mind, it's, it's like God has placed gifted men in the body of Christ to equip you, to mend your net, to give you a net that can actually catch fish, to, to give you a bone that can actually function as you go about to do ministry and service. And and here's a, the question for you to consider, because many people, when it comes to evangelism, that's, that's really like a, a room clearer. You know, that's like a bench clearer, as we used to say in sports, someone made a bad joke or uh, maybe their feet smelled. We'd be like, whoa, that's a bench clear. You know, that's a room clear and people would leave. And sometimes evangelism has the same effect on people where it's like, oh, boy, I don't want to get caught into that. But here's the question. If God, based on Ephesians 2.10, if, if God himself has one or maybe two or even a few evangelism type good works that are designed specifically for you to walk in, wouldn't you want to be prepared for them? I mean, isn't that worth spending time to get equipped and to get your, your net mended in such a way that you could catch a fish that maybe God wants to throw into your net. I mean, this is, this is what we're talking about. See, some people will say, well, I never will be able to do that. Or that's definitely not my gifting. Or I could just never see myself being comfortable with that. What happens is many believers through fear or uncomfortability, they just, they make up their mind that this is a good work that they'll never engage in. They've basically determined, although they would never say this, that, you know, God, if you want me to walk in one or two or three evangelism opportunities in my lifetime, I'm not going to do it. I'm just letting you know, God, I'm not, I'm not even interested. And instead of having that, that mindset of being kind of independent from the Lord, I would just encourage each one of us. I'm I'm not saying that you're going to be sharing the gospel every day of your life for the rest of your life or being uncomfortable situations. But to just say, you know what, Lord, I'll be available. I'm available. I'm just available. I just want to, by faith, I want to be available. If it never happens, it never happens. But if it does, I want to be available. And I want to have taken the time to be equipped with a method to share. What the ironic thing is, is many of the same people would never take that approach to any other good works in the Christian life. But in evangelism, that seems to be how many people can think because of the fear and the the unpreparedness involved. Again, if God wants to throw a fish into your net, you at least want to have a net in your hand and preferably you want a net with no holes in it, right? So we talking about that to, to talk about being equipped and being ready. Since none of us know exactly what good works God has designed for us on a day-to-day moment, moment moment-by-moment basis between now and the rest of our lives, why not take serious 
our equipping. And that's what Second Timothy talks about, the, the value of the intake of the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so this is not only listening or taking in the teaching of the Word of God, but responding to it and thus becoming equipped for every good work that God has designed each one of us to walk in. A third practical how-to is to pray. We must be a people of prayer, and we must be praying largely in two different ways. And and go with me to Colossians chapter 4. One of the things, too, you may have noticed as we read some of the accounts from, from Walter Wilson's book, Just What the Doctor Ordered, you see, he was a man of prayer. He was constantly asking the Lord, okay, give me wisdom here, Lord, lead me to the right person. So there was this prayer life that undergirded all of these evangelistic opportunities. I mean, just this awareness that God may want to use him in that way. And thus he, he prayed accordingly. The first type of prayer that I believe we need to pray is, is to pray for open doors. Pray for open doors. We're going to see this in Colossians chapter four, verse three. And this is Paul. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. But notice the prayer request there. Lord, open a door for us. What's really fascinating, because we have the end of the story, so to speak. Paul, those of you that know the the history of Colossians, you know, Paul is writing that letter from a Roman prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to probably four guards a day. They're probably on a six-hour shift or rotation. And the guards who were guarding him history tells us were were most likely the Praetorian guards, which were maybe the equivalent of our secret service. They were that group, the Praetorian guard was actually tasked with guarding and protecting the emperor of Rome, but they would often do for high crimes or people who had appealed to Caesar, they would be given the task of guarding or keeping those prisoners under guard as well. So Paul was under guard with the Praetorian guard. And so did God answer this prayer request of the Colossians? Did God answer Paul's prayer request for open doors? Well, look over in Philippians chapter four, just a fascinating, subtle, mind blowing comment that Paul gives right at the end of the book. Verse 21, Philippians 4, 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me, greet you. That means the saved people who are with me, greet you. And then notice this, all the saints greet you but especially those who are of Caesar's household. And basically what God had done is he had opened a door, even through the guards guarding Paul, that the gospel had actually penetrated the emperor's household. And some within his household, whether that was the guards, maybe if that was family members, had put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's this prisoner. He's under house arrest. He's just asking God to open doors. And God does that miraculously even into the very home of the emperor. 
Understand this, and we just saw this with the Japanese barber story. God cares about people. God cares about people. He is working in the lives of people. He is convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. He wants to use you in your sphere of influence to share the good news with people who need to hear it. Whether or not you or I realize that there are people in our lives today, and we might not even know from the surface, we might be shocked, who are in dire need to hear the gospel. And the question is, are we convinced that God wants to do this? I'm reminded of a of an opportunity, a survey evangelism opportunity that I that I was not personally engaged on. My my friend was, and I was sitting next to him at a survey evangelism opportunity in New Braunfels, Texas, at a county fair. This woman sat down to take the survey. She was drinking a beer and eating a funnel cake. He got done with the gospel presentation and he said, does this make sense? Do you have any questions? And she said, I, this is incredible. It, it makes complete sense. And he said, well, is there anything keeping you from putting your faith in Christ? And she said, no, I put my faith in Christ a couple minutes ago when you were telling me what he did for me. She, she really got it. She really clicked on that. And this is what she said. She said, who knew that I would come to the county fair and get the message that I've been searching for the last five to six months? Apparently, this woman had been searching. She had been going to churches. She had been reading online. Nothing seemed to make sense. The more she read, the more places she went, the more confused she got. And yet she came and sat down at the county fair with a funnel cake and a beer in her hand. And she said, wow, this is what I've been looking for. So there are people like that in your day-to-day sphere of influence. As we pray, we want to pray for open doors. And then secondly, I believe God wants to answer that prayer, and thus we need the second prayer. We need boldness to go through those doors when God opens them. And go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians six nineteen through 20. Paul says this, And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You see that word boldly repeated twice. To me, that's encouraging that, that the Apostle Paul asked prayer for boldness. That means that there were times in his ministry that maybe he, he didn't have that boldness that we would so accustomed, be, be so accustomed to thinking that he did all the time, every minute of every day. In fact, we know that, that Jesus appeared to him when he was in the city of Corinth to encourage him to keep sharing the message that he told him, I've got much people in this city. You see that in Acts. I think it's Acts 18. Let me just give you that reference. Yeah, Acts 18, verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. Paul was scared. Paul was nervous at that point. So this this prayer for boldness in Ephesians makes sense, and it it humanizes him in a way that that we can relate to, because sometimes we get nervous and scared. We still need courage to proceed into these conversations and we need boldness and encourage from the Lord to do so when an opportunity presents itself. One evangelist said that, that believers are so often intimidated in evangelism by what they think will happen or what they think might happen. 
instead of what does happen. In other words, it's the fear of the unknown, what might happen, the fact that they might not know the answer, they might get stuck, they might look like a fool. Rather than engage and just see what happens, they, they've already convinced themselves through fear or intimidation that, that it's not going to go well. So we need that, that encouragement and that boldness to move forward. And then just remember, God's desire is not to chastise us if we blow an evangelism opportunity. It's He wants us to grow. He wants us to learn from it, but it also enjoy the process and the opportunity to partner with him in something that truly matters. You remember the story I read last week the from Just What the Doctor Order, the little man in a big city, and he literally pl- prayed in his hotel room for God to open a door and to give him boldness to go through it. And within 20 minutes, he was able to share the gospel with that German stationary store owner just a couple of minutes from his hotel room. And so we see God desires and delights in answering these types of prayers. It brings us to the fourth point, and that is take the pressure off yourself. You know, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a church situation or, or around people where it, it's really high pressure. It almost feels like high pressure sales. They, Everyone's putting pressure on you to evangelize. You've got, maybe you've got an accountability group. Uh, I, I used to be a part of accountability groups where we had to report from the week before how many people we shared the gospel with. And it was designed to put pressure on you to get out there and create opportunities. I would encourage you to take the pressure off. I think more than putting external pressure on yourself, that you would bask and enjoy the love of Jesus Christ and allow him to motivate you from within. Buying into his program for you, even amongst fear, even amongst being a little bit nervous, even amongst being anxious and not certain that you're going to do things well, but just walking hand in hand with him. And that that would be a, a success in my book taking the pressure off of themselves. Just remember this too. Many times people put an overemphasis on evangelism to the point where they, they create an error. You are not spiritual because you evangelize and you are not carnal. If you do not evangelize, you are spiritual when you walk by means of the spirit period. And we've got to keep that clear in our mind. Otherwise evangelism oftentimes can take a, a bigger role or a bigger level in our thinking as if this is the only way God will ever truly love us is if we evangelize. It's flat out not true. Evangelism may be one good work that God has designed for you. There are other good works. And so the, the really the point is, is enjoying fellowship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit. The Spirit of God can motivate us and provide opportunities to share the gospel. And that's what we really need to learn to do. Understand this. Not every conversation will turn spiritual. Not every spiritual conversation will result in a conversion. Man, that alone, just understanding this alone can be freeing for so many of us. It's for this reason, oftentimes, that many people will not even engage in conversations because they can't stomach or think of of a potential that if they start the conversation, if they don't close the deal, then they're going to be a failure. And rather than to be a failure, I'll just never start the conversation. Very important. Just because this person did not trust Christ, many people think, oh, well, I must have done it bad. I must be terrible at evangelism. I'll just let other people do it. And then they walk away and they never do it again. Understand it is okay Not every conversation is going to result in a conversion. Be okay with that. In fact, you may be a planter 
or a waterer, you may not be a harvester. And see, all of us want to be harvesters. And even Dr. Wilson's stories, right? They're, they're exciting. Why? Because he's harvesting. And we're like, man, I want to do that. I want to be a harvester. But it's okay if you're not a harvester, but you are a planter and a waterer. You are contributing at some point. You know, they say oftentimes it takes, I forget, I think it's like 15 gospel conversations with somebody on average before they trust in Christ. Maybe you're number seven in that process. Maybe you're number 10 in that process. Maybe you're number 12. Maybe you're number one. It doesn't matter. You're part of the process. And God, even though you don't get a conversion, even though you're not a harvester, you could still bear fruit in that situation. You could still be in fellowship with the Lord and you're not even getting a conversion. And we need to just be okay with that. I was encouraged the other day and I won't mention him by name because I don't want to embarrass him, but I was encouraged the other day. I I know a person who's very quiet, always been quiet his whole life, not real comfortable talking with people. This even talking with somebody, which he could do may terrify him in some situations, but you know, he's taken it upon himself to, to buy gospel tracks and to go out early in the morning while he's walking and getting some exercise and he's giving out tracks. He's putting tracks on cars and on doors. And, and I think even people that, that he may walk by that will take them. And you know what? That's a person that says, you know what? I'm comfortable being a planner of water. I'm comfortable being part of the process. I don't have to be the person that closes the deal. Praise God for people like that. Praise God for you. If you are that way, I, I have had many conversations in my life where somebody has not trusted Christ at the end of the conversation. And we need to be okay with that. It doesn't need to be an discouragement to us. In fact, one of the things that the book Tactics says often is he says, put a pebble in their shoe. And each one of us knows what it feels like to have a pebble in our shoe. What do you, what do you do when you have a pebble in your shoe? It's like you try to keep walking, but eventually you're like, forget it. I, I got to stop. Like I got to take this shoe up. I got to get this pebble out of here. And if you're putting pebbles in people's shoe, you're giving them something to think about. Before the conversation is over, what we're praying and we're hoping is that that little nugget of truth that you put in their shoe is going to stay in their mind and stay in their thinking so much so that they're going to have to get resolution to it. That's another thing that we can be very effective in contributing to just by engaging people in conversation. And so finally, our fifth point is, is simply to talk to people, just be willing to engage in conversation with people. And incredibly enough, most people never share the gospel with another because they won't talk to people. And I know that sounds so simple. This is how conversations start. Leave some margin in your schedule so you have the ability to talk to people. Maybe you're waiting in line the grocery store. Maybe you're waiting in line at the driver's license office. Maybe you're, you're at work and you're in the break room with somebody. Talk to people, ask them how they're doing. Just engage in conversation. It's not like you're trying to, you're you're trying to engage in conversation to close the deal. You're just enjoying people. You're just enjoying talking to people. We're not going to be able to have personal evangelism without some kind of personal contact. And I'll tell you this, the, the way that I've kind of viewed it in my own life, in terms of just being aware of opportunities, if someone is really talkative with me, I just assume God may be giving me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. I remember 
a couple years ago. I was on my way back from Liberia and the trip from Liberia from start to finish, from airport to airport to get home is about 30 hours total. You're either in a plane, in an airport or on in a car on the way to the airport or on the way home. 30 hours. Typically I'll fly from Liberia to Brussels and then I'll have a layover and then I'll fly to Chicago or Washington and then I'll fly home to Atlanta. And it was on that final trip home, I think it was from Washington to Atlanta that I was in the back of the plane. I was, unfortunately, I was in the very back row where I couldn't recline my chair. I was tired as all get out. I was just exhausted. And I really was looking forward to a couple of hours of just not saying anything and crashing. I mean, I was exhausted. And this is after the workshop. And I sit down and there's this college age girl sitting next to me. Before we even took off from the plane, you know, most, most college age kids today, they're on their phone. They got their headphones in. You never talk to them at all. This gal immediately engaged me in conversation, just immediately. She was super friendly and super talkative and super bubbly and just a real sharp gal. And, and, and she was just saying some things that were just really amazing to me. Like she loved her mom and she had such a great relationship with her mom and she was going to have to call her here in a minute. She didn't want to think me to think I was, that she was rude. And I was like, no, I think that's great. And really all I wanted to do was go to sleep. I mean, I was exhausted, like I said, and, and yet this kind of truth came to mind. I said, you know what, God, this gal's talking to me. I'm going to just take it as a clue that maybe your spirit wants me to speak with this girl. Long story short, we got into a great spiritual conversation. This young lady was believed that the Bible was God's word, went to church growing up, but she was very confused on what it took to be saved. And when I asked her if if she thought anybody could be 100% sure that they were going to heaven, she's like, oh no, there's no way anybody can be 100% sure. So my transition question is, well, has anyone ever taken the Bible and shown you that you can be 100% sure? And she's like, no. Can I show that to you? And she's like, oh, I'd love for you to show that. I mean, she was thrilled. And I was like, wow, here is somebody that God placed right in my path. That point is that if you get talking with someone and they're super friendly and engaged, the spark should be going off your mind. Okay, well, maybe maybe God is going to allow me to, to share. Maybe he wants me to and, and just be aware. Just an encouragement. Notice people. Pay attention to their facial expressions, their their body language, what they're wearing. We'll look at an example here in a second. What's what's on their desk? What book do they have open? What do they say? What are things that they are not saying? I won't tonight read another story from just what the doctor ordered, but I'm going to read a, a story from the book Tactics just to give you an idea of what we're talking about in a conversation. This gentleman who wrote the book, was engaging a young lady at a one-hour Photoshop. Remember one-hour Photoshops? They don't exist anymore. Well, I don't know. Maybe they do exist. (laughs) I know Photoshop still exists at Walgreens. I don't know if they still have one hour. They probably do. Just listen to this. And I just want, more than anything, I'm not going to read the whole story, but just notice how he engages in conversation and how he he notices things. He He's trying to pay attention to things and gather information. He says, several years ago, while on vacation at our family cabin in Wisconsin, my wife and I stopped at the one hour photo in town. I noticed, again, look what he notices. I noticed that the woman helping us had a large pentagram, a five-pointed star generally associated with the occult dangling from her neck. So he notices that. So what's he going to do with it? 
some of us would probably notice that and be like, oh, I'm not talking to her. She's probably a Satanist, you know, <laughs> oh, that this conversation wouldn't go well. He puts no pressure on himself. I just want you to notice how he naturally engages her in conversation. He says, does that star that you're wearing have religious significance? I asked, pointing to the pendant, or is it just jewelry? She said, yes, it has religious significance. She answered, the five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. And then she added, I'm a pagan. He was familiar with this terminology. And so he said, so you're a Wiccan? And she nodded. Yes, she was a witch. That's what Wiccans believe, that they're witches. She said, it's an earth religion, the woman explained, like the Native Americans. We respect all life. Now, I want you to notice how he takes this conversation and he starts moving it into what we would call maybe spiritual things. And we'll talk about this in a second, the difference. So she says, we respect all life. And he goes, oh, if you respect all life, I said, then I suppose you're pro-life on the abortion issue. She shook her head and no, actually I'm not. I'm pro-choice. I was surprised. Isn't that an unusual position for someone in Wicca to take? I mean, since you're committed to respecting all life, she said, you're right. It is odd. She admitted, then quickly qualified herself. I know I could never do that. I mean, I could never kill a baby. I wouldn't do anything to hurt anyone else because it might come back on me. Now, I want you to notice again what he notices. Now, this was a remarkable turn in the conversation for two reasons. First, notice the word she used to describe abortion. By her own admission, abortion was baby killing. The phrase wasn't a rhetorical flourish of mine. These were her own words. I did not have to persuade her that abortion took the life of an innocent human being. She already knew it. She had just offered me a tremendous leg up in the discussion, and I was not going to turn it down. From then on, I abandoned the word abortion. It would be baby killing instead. And so you see this idea of paying attention, listening to what they're saying, and then using that to advance the conversation. Another very key as part of talking to people, ask lots of questions. A lot of times we think we're going to evangelize someone. We want to evangelize someone and we feel like we got to do all the talking. And that's not the case. We want to ask questions. We want to plow into the conversation, seeking to enjoy it immensely. Enjoy the conversation. Find out more about what it's like to hike the Appalachian Trail, if that's what they said they do. Find out more about what it's like to make widgets. You know, just enjoy people. Enjoy what they're talking about. Ask them questions. People love to talk about things. In fact, this is the next point. You want to ask questions in the three areas where non-Christians are experts. They're always experts in their family, their job, and their background. Always experts. You meet somebody from North Dakota. Oh man, you probably hate snow. Oh my goodness. Whatever. There's this background here. There's things that you can, you can ask them with, you know, what brings you, is that what brought you South? When did you move here? You know, so there Lots of different things where you can ask questions where you're really diving in and digging and, and I'd say plowing into the conversation. And this is one of the things I think is, is very important to understand that those who are effective at turning conversations to spiritual things are usually the ones who don't concentrate on talking, but rather concentrate on listening and asking appropriate questions. That's really a, a key skill that we need to develop if we want to be 
used by the Lord to transition conversations in an easygoing, natural manner. So the entire time you're listening to the answers you're looking for, you're praying for God to give you an opportunity to make a comment about spiritual things. And then this last comment we're going to build on immensely next week. And that is this, proceed from the secular to the spiritual, to the gospel. Generally jumping these steps causes a conversation to be forced and less casual and conversational. These are adequate transitions. I'll leave us with that tonight. Um, we're going to develop that more next week. But a lot of people in, in, in trying to evangelize will jump straight from the secular to the gospel. And it becomes a very awkward transition. It's a very awkward, almost abrasive shift. And it's going to catch people off guard. We want to be a little bit more sensitive to transitions and understanding what that looks like. You don't just say, oh, you're from North Dakota. Wow, it must be cold up there. Well, have you ever thought about the heat of hell? That's an incredibly big jump in transition. Next week, we want to talk, really try to get more into the weeds, so to speak, which sometimes getting in the weeds is really good. How do you transition? How do you get from secular to spiritual and then to the gospel? And what do we mean by that? That's where we're going to end tonight. I hope that was was helpful. Now I feel like we've really tried to set the stage for the real practical how-tos and, and just encourage one another to have this mindset of just availability to the Lord and and a recognition that, that God wants to use you. I mean, that's an overwhelming, hopefully an overwhelmingly exciting feeling that God has designed you exactly the way that he wants you and, and exactly in the manner that he wants to use you in the spot and the place and the time and the geographic location and all these things. It's all God can use you. And so just want to encourage each one of us to remember that and to be available to be used by the Lord. So let's end there. Lord, thanks for your word. And Lord, I, I just am impressed this evening, especially with the concept that we are co-laborers with you in your vineyard that you give us, you've gifted us with, with spiritual gifting. Lord, you've given us a certain background. You've given us a certain exposure to sound Bible teaching. Lord, we've got, you've given us a love for your son, uh, an understanding of what he's done for us and accomplished. And Lord, we know that there are people in and around us that need to hear this message, that that are looking for this message. Maybe they don't even realize it today. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us open doors. Give us boldness that when you do open a door that we are ready to enter. May we more consistently be able to take our eyes off of ourselves and our own inadequacies and, and put our eyes on you. That we might, as you instruct us in Colossians 3, that, that we might set our mind on things above. That we might stop setting our mind on things on the earth and just be available to be used by you. And so I pray for each one listening uh, and attending that you would be just an special encouragement to them in, in this area and as they walk with you in their daily life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.